welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast, where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barakoff, and this month I spent a delightful hour chatting with Australian novelist Jacqueline Moriarty about her book, Gravity is the Thing. We talked about so many things. It was such a great chat. We talked about her inspiration for the novel, uh, the unusual structure, including what she calls fragmented storytelling. So listen out for that. And the idea of the reader trusting you to deliver on the promise of the novel. Jacqueline also talked about some of the techniques she uses to fire up her creativity, the unique partnership she embarked on with her editor, and my old chestnut backstory. So, a little bit about Gravity is the Thing. It's the story of Abigail Sorensen. Now, Abby lives in Sydney, she's a former lawyer, and now she owns the Happiness Cafe and is a single mother to four-year-old Oscar. When she was 16, Abby's brother, who she was really close to, went missing, and his disappearance has never been solved. On the same day her brother went missing, she began receiving random chapters from a self-help book called The Guidebook in the Post. Now, she believes that the guidebook and the mystery of her brother's disappearance must be connected, so she agrees to keep receiving these chapters for the next 20 years. And now, at the age of 36, Abby has been invited to an all-expenses-paid retreat in Tassie to learn the secret behind the guidebook. What unfolds is a really beautiful, heartwarming exploration of opening yourself up to new people and new ideas. The book is also about that unresolved grief of having a missing family member. It's about single parenthood. It's about friendship. All the characters in this book felt like friends by the end. I loved it so much and I've pushed it into the hands of so many friends over the years. Now remember there can be spoilers in this podcast, although we don't really talk about the big resolution to the main mystery of the novel. But as always, if you hate knowing anything about a book before you've read it, just go buy a copy of Gravity is the Thing in all the usual places. Now a little bit about Jacqueline. She grew up and still lives in Sydney. She studied law and English at Sydney Uni, Yale in the US and Cambridge in England. She was working as a media and entertainment lawyer when she published her first novel, Feeling Sorry for Celia. She now writes full-time and is the author of 13 books for children, young adults and grown-ups. She's been the recipient of the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, the Queensland Literary Award and the Aurelius Award for Fantasy. So, without further ado, here's Jacqueline Moriarty. Jacqueline Moriarty, welcome to Writer's Book Club. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a, a pleasure to see you again. You and I first met at StoryFest a couple of years ago when I did a creative writing workshop with you, which was so good. It really unlocked my creativity and afterwards I wrote up an absolute storm. So thank you for that. Well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. That's a beautiful festival, wasn't it? I love that the whole region and the atmosphere and the mood. It was, it was wonderful. So I'm very happy to hear you wrote up the storm. Ah, it really was a beautiful festival. And of course, that was the time when I learned about your beautiful book, Gravity is the Thing, and picked it up and read it. And I just loved it. So I'm so happy that you've agreed to come on the podcast and do a deep dive into it today. 
is teaching something you still do or is that was that a kind of a one-off no occasionally I don't do it as often as other authors I know do it but I always enjoy it when I do yeah well you're really good at it (laughs) you should do more often can you start by telling us the premise of gravity is the thing and where the idea came from Sure. Um, The premise is that Abigail is a 35-year-old woman and when she was 15, sorry, I should say she's just about to turn 36, and when she was 16, she started getting extracts from a self-help book called The Guidebook in the Mail. Uh, And she didn't know who was sending them. They just came to her anonymously and they gave her instructions on how to live her life. And around the same time, that this guidebook started arriving in her mailbox, her brother disappeared and she was very close to her brother. So now it's 20 years later and for all that time her brother has been missing and for all that time she's been getting these extracts in the mail telling her how to live her life and giving her instructions on things she should try. And now she has received a new letter that tells her, if you come to this retreat on this island, you will learn the truth about the guidebook. And so obviously she goes to the retreat hoping that somehow the guidebook is connected to her missing brother and that she'll find the truth about him when she gets there. But uh, what she discovers is something completely unexpected. Yes, that is for sure. Um, Oh, and you asked about the inspiration? Yes. And I have to be careful. Sometimes I just talk too much. So uh, you can wave at me if you think I'm talking too much. I highly encourage talking too much. It's something that I indulge in on a regular basis. So just go for it. Thank you. Anyway, the idea, I think the idea came to me from a couple of different places. One was just the fact that I often felt like I wasn't very good at uh, living at, um, and I, I hope other people, well, I don't hope other people, but I think other people feel that way occasionally too. You know, that there are rules for life that people understand, like when you should start using moisturiser on your skin and what kind of regime for going to the dentist you should have and bigger things like how, how you should choose your partner and how you should raise your child, all those kinds of things that... I developed this little fantasy in my mind, what if there was a committee and everybody had their own personalised committee of people who were keeping an eye on you and who could observe and say things like, well, your posture's not very good. If You could make a dramatic change to your life if you just put your shoulders back and wear this colour lipstick and I think this combination of colours will work for you and get rid of that boy, he's wrong for you and that kind of thing. Of course, I, it would be terrible to be having people telling you what to do, but that became a fantasy of mine, somebody telling me how to make my life better, which I think partly comes from things like looking back at yourself when you were young and looking at pictures and thinking, ah, oh, why didn't you just cut your hair? Why didn't you put your shoulders back? That kind of thing. I probably still don't put my shoulders back enough. <laughs> uh, so that idea of a guidebook, and then I thought, imagine if pages from the guidebook started coming anonymously and what they would mean. Uh, And the other point of inspiration was I was on a train at one point. It was the Euro, what's it called? The Eurostar, the Eurail, the train that goes from London to Paris. And there were uh, two people, who strangers who happened to be sitting together on the seat across the aisle from me. And they started chatting and one of them said to the other, I don't know yet what message you have for me, 
but I know you will have a message. And the, it was a young man and a young woman. And the young woman said, yes, I will have a message for you. And you will have a message for me. And they were both intensely excited because they had both recently read the Celestine Prophecy, which was big at that time. Everyone was a huge bestseller. And it's a book about the power of coincidence and how strangers have messages for each other. And it was so funny listening to this conversation. Like I was trying not to giggle at them, but at the same time, I could see that it was wonderful that they both believed in this magic and why not believe in it. And maybe it's true. Maybe strangers do have messages for us. And so it was that idea of these self-help books that arise occasionally and that become huge and sweeping bestsellers and people grab onto them and hold onto them and try and change their life and think this is the solution, this is the answer. So I was re really interested in looking into that. And I think that connected with the idea of missing persons because it was the self-help industry or that particular kind of self-help industry, those huge books that have that secret, that key, that answer, seem to offer a promise of some kind of truth or hope that we cling on to. And if you have a missing person in your life, there is an absence of that central truth that we also, in a general, more universal sense, we don't actually know why we're here or what the point is, but philosophers and self-help manuals are trying to solve that. And then in a much more exquisitely painful way, people who have close people to them who are missing they also have a fundamental truth that is absent and that they are reaching for. So mm. those are the different strands that came together in the basic premise for the book. Yes, I, I can't imagine living with that incredible loss of somebody who, and, and with no closure, that must be so difficult for people. The idea of the guidebook also, yeah, you're definitely not alone I wish somebody had been around to tell me all of those things as well. I remember one of my bridesmaids when I was 32 quietly took me aside and said, have you ever thought about having your eyebrows waxed? Because they kind of do meet in the middle a little. And, and I said, you can have your eyebrows waxed? <laughs> I had no idea. And I was 32. I mean, come on. I really could have used a chapter of the guidebook to have arrived about 15 years before that and told me about the eyebrow waxing. Anyway, well, I digress. It worked, but I think um, nine times out of 10, if someone said that to you, you could be outraged and furious and deeply hurt. And I love my <laughs> eyebrows the way they are. And then your friendship would fall apart. And uh, So it doesn't always, no, it doesn't always work. I do remember my mum used to say to me, why don't you go for a walk? Just take a 35 minute walk each day. And she was right. But instead of, because um, I was quite round as a teenager, and I would have been much happier and healthier if I'd gone for a walk. But instead, I thought that how dare she judge me for the <laughs> shape of my body? This is who I am. But, yes. Yeah. So, and, and that's true, too. So we don't really want people telling us. But if, if you don't know and your friend loves you and says it in a caring way and you would have actually liked to wax your eyebrows, then why not? And yeah. Happy. She but did mean it in a loving way. She's still a, a really good mate. Good. Um, 35 minutes is very precise. 35-minute walk. <laughs> Not a 30-minute walk. <laughs> I think it was because that was the distance from 
our place to the shops. Yeah. That's where it came from. I guess it stayed in my mind for 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, the guidebook acts beautifully as a narrative device in terms of delivering backstory, or that's how I felt about it. Can you tell us about the reflections that Abby writes growing up and how they act as a springboard into her past? Uh, sure. Yes, there are reflections. The reason Abby writes reflections is because one of the things the guidebook tells her to do is at the end of each year, write some reflections on the year that has just happened. And I don't I don't want to give away too much. I'm, I'm never sure how much I can say about this book because how much should stay as a surprise. Because it's not, I mean, it's something that's revealed fairly early in the novel. Mm. So I think it's all right to say it. But um, that the guidebook actually has been secretly teaching everybody who receives it the secret to human flight. And so part of that secret is I want people who receive the guidebook to write their reflections on the year that they've just had. And in a way that is a kind of unburdening of themselves, which they then send away to the guidebook editors. And that's part of the metaphor, which the guidebook is suggesting is not just a metaphor but actually literal that if you lighten yourself then you can fly so that's why abigail is writing reflections and we get to see them as a also a way of us seeing abigail and so we see her write her reflections i think when she's 16 and when she's 26 and 36 i think um but regular reflections and the reason I did that was because I wanted to see Abby as a 16-year-old and as a 26-year-old and get inside her head at those times. And I was really interested in the overlay that we each have within ourselves and our identities of our younger selves as who we are now, but we are also the child who we once were and the teenager and the 20-something person, even though we evolve, they are still part of us. And particularly that is true, I think, if you have some kind of trauma at a certain age that we're all partly 16, but we are particularly still 16 if something traumatic happened to us at 16. And that is doubled for Abigail or for people who have someone go missing, because if someone goes missing at a certain point, then your life stops in a way at that point. So Abigail is still that 16-year-old, so I wanted her reflections to represent how she was then and also how she is now, so that's why I tried to weave them through the text. And she writes them in a certain way that she calls impressionistic glances, which is an idea she got from a writing teacher at school where she just writes short paragraphs about her reflections and not just going on and on and on. Partly I did that just because I thought 16-year-olds, you don't want them to go on and on and on because all that self-reflection when you're 16, genuine self-reflection can become very tedious and tiresome or maybe genuine self-reflection at any age. But that teen angst thing, I think I wanted to split it up and try and, and make it faster and quicker. But also because... If you want to get at the truth, it can fly by you. So I wanted her to be snatching at pieces of truth as they flew by her. Mm-hmm. So backstory and flashbacks are something that writers can struggle with. What do you think is the secret to writing backstory or, or putting in flashbacks? Is it something that you have hard and fast rules on or does it come organically to you? 
Uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Mm. When I was writing this, I tried to be intuitive or instinctive, where I felt at a certain point in the text, this is the time where naturally you would have a flashback, and trying also to reflect how life works, because we live in the present, but we are also constantly, I don't know, do you do the thing where sometimes a memory comes to you, just suddenly appears out of the blue and you ha it's not particularly or not as far as you can see connected to anything that is happening around you or any thought you've just had, but it completely settles into your mind and you are there in that moment. And sometimes maybe it's a smell because, you know, smell of yes. memories, but sometimes you have no reason to understand why that happened. And also that happens to me and I think probably to, to this happen to yes, you too. Yes, definitely. Sometimes it's the same, this episode from your life keeps coming back to you and you think why am I right, always yes. going back there and I suppose we're supposed to explore it and understand it or maybe it's just a glitch in our memory and your memory just yes. thinks you want this yeah have this have this have this over <laughs> and over again so maybe I wanted to reflect that a little bit in the although I didn't keep keep doing the same memory over and over because that would have become boring so it's a balance between trying to reflect what life is like and how our consciousness works and also I wanted the narrative to keep moving because people want progress but progress requires reflection and backtracking and then what's happening in the present becomes more and more layered depending mm. on the past. Well at some point you want answers don't you? So exactly. we want to know as the story progresses where is Oscar's father? Who was Abby's brother what happened to him so in the present story you're setting up these questions that the backstory then answers but it has to be done in a way that is still really engaging and you do that beautifully I was trying to reread sections to find out how you did it um, but it was magic so I can't <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky though because you want you want mysteries you want to keep reading because you want to find the answers to the mystery so if yeah. you tell if you say it too fast then you lose that reason to be reading but if you leave it too long then it becomes extremely frustrating for the reader yes exactly i loved the structure of this novel we have parts and chapters but not traditionally set out. There are lots of lovely vignettes, which is my favourite style of storytelling. And I think Abby's with her impressionistic glances, as she calls them. <laughs> Can you tell us how the structure evolved and how much planning was involved or how intuitive was it? Sure. I think I've always been drawn to fragmented storytelling. I don't just think I know that. <laughs> my first book, Feeling Sorry for Celia was written in letters and notes and then many of my books are narrated in that way. Partly it's because I love correspondence and letter writing and I love unreliable narrators and the space between letters and all that possibility in epistolary writing. But I do wonder if part of what I was drawn to uh, came from, I, I worked as a lawyer for a, a few years and studied law for a long time. And I loved the way the law tells stories in fragments because when you have a pile of documents and pieces of evidence, they don't come to you in a linear fashion and they come from different 
individuals. So you have witnesses who tell different parts of the story and then you have documents, so maps and diagrams and deeds and, and notes and things like that, that all come together and a story emerges from that. And I just found that such a tantalizing way to learn about truth or even to uh, reflect on truth because if you choose one particular chronology or one particular linear way of telling a story, then you are immediately shutting out every other way of telling it. And we all know that, that if there is no objective or, or there's a very loose objective truth that's out there about what's happened, but otherwise it's very subjective and it changes depending on when you start and when you stop and depending on whose perspective you tell and depending on how you tell it and the tone that you assume. So I love the idea of, of breaking the truth into pieces and then putting it back together again and seeing how the story emerges from that. But um, I think you were saying you, you also don't want to frustrate people by being too chaotic. So with this book, I did lots of writing of different aspects of it, and then I did a lot of shuffling around papers and uh, I had so many different versions of it to try and, and change the order that it is told in so that the story does emerge in a uh, hopefully natural way. Did a lot of that happen in the editing or as you were going in your first both. draft, both? Um, yeah. both. I, I wrote so many different versions of this and the original version was called The Effort of Pleasure. Um, and then I had a, a version called something like Zebra <laughs> um, because of a line. I don't even know if the line is still in the book, but where somebody says, when you hear the sound of thundering hooves, think horses, don't think zebras. And then I wanted to call it Here Come the Elephants. <laughs> I loved the title Here Come the Elephants Here come for the a elephants. while. I fought for that for a while <laughs> with an exclamation mark, Here Come the Elephants. So I edited it myself a lot over 15 years mm. and as I read more and more self-help books because I wanted to read as much as I could to explore the idea of self-help and how it weaves into this story and how it affects life in modern Western civilization. But what that meant was I had a huge amount of material, so 15 years of research and reading and note-taking and and developing the characters and the ideas meant there was thousands of pages of notes. So the process of editing for myself became about choosing and I'm a very indecisive person, so that's difficult for me. And Abby's a lawyer and I was a lawyer too, so there was lots of legal things in there, which I personally find fascinating and intriguing, but readers don't necessarily, some readers like it. But I like it. So a lot of the editing became about trying to cut out more and more my own editing and I thought I'd got it as much done as I possibly could but then my editor at Pam McMillan who is Claire Craig and she's such a wonderful person and she's a wonderful editor generally but it felt like she was perfect for this because she has such a magical way of seeing the world. She can be very practical and cynical but she can also be quite um, spiritual in the general sense of the universal and she's quite lyrical and poetic just in the way she even the way she emails so 
And that's what I was hoping to do with this book. She sounds like the perfect editor for this book. She was so good for it. And she was ingenious because she would have these conversations with me where she was immersed in the narrative and the story. And she was so good at praising it and talking about it. We would have conversations where it felt like we were both inside the novel and she was loving it and respecting it. And I felt perfectly safe. And I would go home and do completely different things, which maybe another editor, if they, or if it had just been on a piece of paper, do this, do this, I would have resisted violently. <laughs> but she had this ingenious way where I, I was really happy with her because apart from her methodology, they were great ideas. Yeah, because you said there was no one way of writing this book and there was a certain amount of intuition with the way you structured it. I'm indecisive as well, so I imagine there was a bit of second guessing all the way through. So it must have been really edifying to have Claire come through and say, no, you're you're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So with this fragmented style of storytelling... Do you need to trust the reader to do some of the work? Yes, definitely. Um, And also I think a big part of that is the reader trusting you because I suppose some people have described my writing as whimsical or quirky and I never set out to be whimsical or quirky and it always troubles me when they say whimsical or quirky because I probably wouldn't pick up a book myself if it said whimsical or quirky because often I think that's an excuse to not be coherent and not make sense and not give the answers. I think it it might just be the way my mind works. I'm not setting out and I'm not saying I'm going to do something clever and whimsical. This is just the way I want to tell the story and it happens to turn out in a way that people describe as whimsical or quirky. But I know this book isn't for everyone and I know some readers, I'm trying to remember if anyone said they've thrown the book across the room. No. said that to me. But I have seen reviews where people say, I stopped reading after 30 pages, this book makes no sense. And... I always want to say, you have to trust me, it is going to make sense. So, And I understand they're allowed to stop reading if they want to. I don't necessarily want to hear about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Probably it makes no sense because it, I think it does make sense. So hopefully most people keep reading. I love it because I love reading a section and thinking, oh, where is she taking me? I feel like... I'm being taken by the hand and I trust that you will give me the answer, that you will take me to the place that you had imagined taking me all along. Oh, thank you. Have you read Maggie O'Farrell's This Must Be The Place? Uh, Yeah. It's the one that is quite fragmented and she does the same thing where you really, oh, hang on, whose head am I in and why am I now in this point of view and where are we and why? And you just trust her and just go with it. And yeah. and she delivers on the promise beautifully. And I feel like you do the same things. That's so kind of you. But it is also, it, it's, it's lovely to be able to, when you can trust readers, because I know not everybody will understand it, although I might just understand at one level, but it's wonderful when a reader talks about it in a way that shows that they have understood what you were trying to do. Um, mm. And and then that it feels like a beautiful connection. So I'm not necessarily linear, but I love books, like you say, like Maggie O'Farrell mm. or Kate Atkinson also, yes. those books that take me in completely unexpected 
directions and let's swerve around like a dance. I like that kind of book. As long as there's an ending. I think sometimes whimsical and quirky can be an excuse not to give you an ending or not to tie the pieces together. And it's always been very important to me to have a resolution to explain things, not to leave loose threads. I will ask you about the ending later, but listeners, for those of you who haven't read the book, trust Jackie. She will mm-hmm. take you to all the good places. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind reading a section from Gravity is a Thing? It's just a small section that really demonstrates this fragmented style of storytelling, but that says so much about the greater narrative. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'll read. It's just about Abby. I don't know if we've mentioned that Abby has a four-year-old son named Oscar. And so she lives with Oscar and they they just come home from somewhere and they are getting ready for bed. Okay. Oscar reached into his shoe, grasped the tongue and tugged on it. It came away in his hand. I startled, looking at the tongue of the shoe, wrenched out, torn out, here in the open air. Oscar seemed unsurprised. His, this thing, he said, tossing it aside. (laughs) I loved that part. It made me laugh because it just hopefully sums up a four-year-old. But Abby's really startled by that, even though he sort of tosses it aside. But to me, it worked really beautifully as a metaphor for Abby feeling like she's opened herself up to Niall, this guy that she had been seeing. And she sort of is feeling quite cast off by him. And to me, that little vignette just acted as a beautiful metaphor for that. Was that something that you consciously set out to do or is it just a beautiful piece of serendipity when these sections come together? I'm I'm really happy that you describe it in that way because that is what I wanted in that scene. I wanted the contrast between the child who just sees the world opening up before them and they assume this is the way reality should be. But the tongue of the shoe should not have come out. It, it, it doesn't usually happen. And so for Abigail, that is a shock. And if your life is, is perfectly balanced and happy and controlled, then a small shock like that is just a, a tiny moment of, well, the shoe's broken, that must have fallen apart for some reason. But if you are in a state where the world has shocked you in huge unexpected ways, has pulled the, the rug out from under you and, and torn open reality in various ways, then something like that can be like a, a huge punch. And, and like you say, like she's taken a part of herself and given it away and the world has wrenched parts of her away. So I'm really glad you, I'm really glad you like that bit because it's very short. The copy editor said, why do we have this scene? Let's cut it. Because she didn't understand. So not everybody will see why it's there. She just said, what's this for? I think you should cut it. And I said, no, that was really important to me. So I'm very happy that you understood. I'm glad. I'm so glad it's in there. I was very fond of Oscar and loved the little sections with him in it. But equally, that scene says so much about Abby's state of mind and the narrative itself. So I'm glad it didn't get cut. Very glad indeed. Um, So speaking of scenes, do you have specific goals for a scene when you sit down to write in terms of what the scene needs to achieve? Because I know this book took a while for you to write, you said 15 years. So when you came back to it each time, did you think, right, what do I need to achieve with this next section? 
I think each each draft when I'm writing it, it's my instinct or intuition that I wait to see what I think should happen next, and scenes appear. So I'm, I trust myself in a way that scenes appear before me or or come to my head and then I write them and follow them and see where they go and and find out as I'm writing the scene sometimes it, it there's a reason for it to be there and then later editing is a time when I can think well there is actually no reason for this scene and cut it or I'll give it a reason or also to think something's missing I like that idea of storytelling as, you know, the stories being out in the landscape, the stories being in the ether, and we wait for them. I'm very drawn to that idea, I think because it helps with my indecisiveness, I think, and it makes it feels like feel like it's not hard work. I'm waiting for the story to come be funneled through me and all that. You just trust in that, that process. Yeah. And then you can get ruthless later, later and say, well, that was rubbish. I couldn't, shouldn't have trusted you at all. And kind of, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, initially I think you do have to trust it. Yeah. Are you good at being ruthless, Jackie? I've got better at being ruthless since I started opening a new document and when I want to cut something out, I cut and paste it into another document and tell myself I'm going to use that later in another book and that enables you to, I think, lose things. And maybe you will use them later, but just actually deleting can be too hard to do, so you yeah. hold on to it. Yeah, I'm like that too. Hold on to everything. Put it in the uh, proverbial spare room and, and maybe one day you'll use it. <laughs> so, yes, as we were saying, the book took you 15 years to write, but you were doing a lot of other writing in in that time. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Like how hard was it to get back into the voice when you came back to it? Were there any techniques that you you used? Usually with most of my books, I choose some favourite songs for each of the characters. And so music I find very helpful at bringing me back into a certain mood or into a character's mind and so I would listen to songs that belong to those characters. Also reading back over what I'd already written. And so often coming back to something, I would spend the whole time just reading what I've already written and not actually move forward very much. <laughs> Always a trap. <laughs> exactly. But she just also, Abigail, was also in my mind a lot of the time, even when I was writing other things, just walking around the neighbourhood, she didn't really leave. And that meant the time in between was time when I could develop the story in unexpected ways because I would be thinking about her. So in a way, she, she was still there. Do you have that playlist for Gravity is the Thing? Yeah, it's just, I'm sure it's somewhere. And as I was talking, I was thinking, I hope you don't ask me what the song is. I know. I knew, I knew you were thinking, please don't ask me that. But I reckon if you can find that playlist, you could put it out on Spotify now. <laughs> That's what a lot of authors are doing. It's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Jessica Detman, whose latest novel just came out, this has been absolutely lovely. She put a playlist together on Spotify and it's just brilliant to listen to it after reading the book. Oh, right, you know, that's the song that they played at the wedding and that's the song that, you know, inspired this. So, I don't know, just an idea, Jackie. It's a great it's another, idea. It's just I, another thing, you know, in the, the business of being an author. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to try and do it. That's a good idea. Follow my books. We were talking before about four-year-old Oscar. You've captured his voice so well with these little examples of 
his life with his mum. I know that when a child's age has passed, it's really difficult to remember all the little episodes and quirks and sayings from that age. How did you manage to tap into Oscar's voice and maintain it over the period of time it took to write the novel? Because your son, like mine, mine's in year 12 now. My son's 14. 14. He's a little bit younger, but yeah, they grow up too fast. And you think, oh, what were those things they used to say that was so cute when he was three or five or seven? Exactly. And you forget it all, don't you? And you do. They're so adorable and you and you just, you're sure you're going to remember. How could you lose that? How could you forget something so special? And then you do, yeah. Yeah, and because, often because it is, what's cute about it is that it's so odd and eccentric and that's why it doesn't stay in your mind in the same way, I, you don't, when someone talks in their sleep and at night and, and you think that is hilarious, I'm going to tell them tomorrow that's what they said, and you can lose that too, or, or dreams, because they make their own kind of dream sense, and that's why they're so appealing, but dream sense doesn't work in the real world. Mm. Um, and I need to start doing this again, but because I, I keep going through phases where I stop, but I generally keep a diary or a journal on my computer and before I start writing each day I that's yeah that's my general idea but lately I haven't been doing it and lucky you're talking about this because you will remind me to do it (laughs) where I just write for 15 minutes in a kind of stream of consciousness way and I find that very helpful partly because it gets rid of junk in my mind and or crankiness and emotions because I can write about them but also when I do that I try to write about recent conversations or small episodes interactions with the outside world and I did that just originally I did that just as an exercise but I did that a lot when my son was a baby and three, four, five, six. And I'm so glad I did because oh. that provides it so many, the memories, so, because I've forgotten them all. And then I read them and I'm so happy to see yes. them there. So Oscar is in many ways based on my Charlie. And, and then reading back over that and using some of those examples of things he'd said to help me to get to know Oscar. So Oscar then became his own person. Yeah. No, he's not my Charlie. He's his own person. And then he started doing things himself. But because I had the material of my Charlie, that helped me to access Oscar, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're a very smart lady keeping all those diaries. I've been listening to George Saunders read from his new writing book about the Russian short stories, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And it's been really interesting because he is, even though he's talking about short stories, he's talking about these concepts that we can use in fiction generally. And he, he was talking about the concept of using description to set mood. And I think that's something that you do beautifully well, the use of positive or negative words and images to foreshadow or set the tone. Is that something that you consciously do? Well, thank you. I'm glad you like that. I think that it's conscious in the in the sense that I consciously try to immerse myself into a character's mind and into a particular scene. And music, I find, helps me to do that too because mm-hmm. it takes you to a different level in a way. And I think when you are in a certain mood or something has happened, you're more likely to experience the world in a different way. So if you're feeling very 
when I'm feeling very happy this morning, I was in a good mood and I looked around and thought, oh, look at that jacaranda tree outside and, and this golden patch of sunlight on the kitchen floor and look at the books lined up on the... And so I was seeing the world in this very positive way, but yesterday I was in a really cranky mood and I was just seeing the clutter and the mold <laughs> coming back on the window ledge and... Oh, it's too cold in this house. So I, I don't think that I consciously try to have the landscape reflect the mood in that way, but I think it just happens because that's what the characters are, are experiencing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read an example if that's okay because I think it would be really useful for the listeners to see what we're talking about. So at the very start of the novel, when Abby is in the guest house and she's full of wonder. She's not quite sure, you know, she's hoping to find out the answer to the guidebook and why she's been receiving it for 20 years and what all the secrets are. And she's feeling all warm and glowy. So she says, Here I was, unexpectedly, in a warm, quiet room with dark floorboards, a tapestry rug and olive green on the floor, framed antique maps on the wall. My suitcase stood in the corner and it seemed content. By the fireplace, a tiny table with elegant legs offered a slice of frosted cake. And the tall man had said there would be snow any time now outside this window. Snow. I'm reading that thinking, I want to be in that guest <laughs> house with the elegant legs and the frosted cake, especially the frosted cake. Um, and then not a few minutes later, she gets a note under the door that implies that she has done something wrong. <laughs> literally two pages later she says I threw open the door but there was nobody there so I slammed it shut in my irritation I ate the cake without a cup of tea without a bath without a robe without calm by the fire just scoop 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 with the silver spoon <laughs> <laughs> I just love that because it really to me just demonstrates that whole concept perfectly how you can really use words at, at that sentence level to set a mood and then flip it on its head loved it <laughs> thank you so much you're such a lovely reader thank you oh it's a pleasure to read your writing jackie in the class i took with you at story fest you took us through some really useful exercises to help unlock our creativity and you talked a little bit before about using stream of consciousness writing to get into the novel can you tell us about some of the other exercises that you use regularly in your own writing practice Music and stream of consciousness writing I find really helpful. Also, I like to go to local cafes when I can and take, um, so I've got one here. I take colored textures and pencils and big notebooks like sketchbooks. And I keep switching between the different colors as I'm writing ideas down or drawing pictures. I like to draw pictures and diagrams and brainstorm. And I'm not an artist in any way, but drawing the pictures seems to crack open different ideas that I didn't know I had and switching the colors of the textures also seems to. So I, I'll write down something like, why is she so angry? And then I'll choose a different color texture and answer the question. And it's some kind of tricking, I think, of your consciousness that makes that work. And I also like to go for walks. So I'm lucky because I live near the Harbour Bridge. So I walk across the Harbour Bridge and look at the water. And for me personally, looking at water 
and I think everyone should try and figure out what works for them when they feel most imaginative and then try and find ways to recreate that. So it might be looking at the night sky or it might be looking at running water or it might be being cozy by the fire and looking at the fire. Um, but something also that works for me is going to sleep. So I um, occasionally, if I'm having a difficult time figuring out an issue or making a decision, after I take my son Charlie to school, I will come back home and put my pajamas back on and get back into bed and <laughs> set the alarm and go back to sleep. And as I'm falling asleep, I'm trying to solve whatever the problem is, but in a very relaxed way. So I'm asking my subconsciousness to solve it for me. And often that works, or at least in or at least new ideas emerge, completely unexpected ideas. And I thought that I'd come up with this myself, but it turns out that it is uh, scientifically proven that that space between being awake and being asleep, that's when we are at our most creative. I think it's called lucid dreaming. And in fact, did you know this, that Thomas Edison, the scientist, used to sit down on a chair and he would hold a metal key in one hand and he'd put a metal pie plate on the floor and he would sit down and he would start to doze and let himself start to fall asleep and think about problems. And then the reason he was holding the key was he would just start to doze and when he fell into a deep sleep, his hand would open, the key would fall and hit the pie plate and wake him up. And so in that way, he could get up and write down all the ideas he had while he was falling asleep. So he liked to use that time. So I I set my alarm. I don't have a key and a pie plate, but I set my alarm so that I don't sleep too long so I can write down the ideas. It doesn't always work, but it feels good. <laughs> yeah, I love that whole concept because waking yourself up means that you don't slip into that state where you can't remember your dreams, which is awful. You wake up in the middle of the night, you think, oh, that's how I solve that plot hole. And exactly. then you think, oh, I'll remember that definitely because it's <laughs> absolutely brilliant and I will never forget it. And then you fall asleep and of course you do forget it. Um, but what you were saying about water, I think that's scientifically proven as well with the, I'm going to say negative ions of water help unlock creativity and there was a Japanese inventor I will have to look this up because I remember being fascinated by it and a similar concept but he did it in water so he would weigh himself down and sink to the bottom of the pool with a waterproof slate and just at the point where he was starting to lose consciousness it sounds a bit dangerous but really he would write down all these ideas that came to him and then he'd sort of you know spring to the surface somehow I think he was only in waist deep water or something so he wasn't in too deep he had to be able to stand up but he found that that really unlocked creativity I think people should be very very careful doing that because I think they people should. do accidentally drown don't they that they do. when you try and hold you you have those competitions so be careful but thank you that is good to know I don't think we should try that. I think it sounds a bit dangerous. I don't want to be responsible for any um, accidental drownings on this yeah. show. But the power of water, I remember this article I read said it's enough to just walk by water. And that's what oh, we do. So that is fine. We don't have to be actually in it. 
good. I'm glad that because that was going to be my next question. And I did that once with my book, The Whispering Wars. There was a point where I was having a lot of trouble and there was a deadline coming up and I and I kept so I kept trying to write as fast as I could, but thinking, oh, this is not good. I just don't like it until I eventually made myself stop for a whole morning and I went and sat by the water and just watched the sun on the water without even thinking about the issue, just putting the phone away looking at the water, not thinking about it. And that afternoon, suddenly I was writing exactly the way I wanted to. So there was something magic there. So I'm glad there's a scientific basis for it. Yes. And that will give me the justification to keep doing things like that. <laughs> um, I loved one of the other exercises you took us through, which was a word association exercise. Oh, yeah. I remember you got us to write down a colour, but instead of just mind mapping out the side things that reminded us of that colour, you prompted us to come up with a combination of ideas and images associated with that colour. And that was such a great exercise and one that I would recommend anyone try. Is that something you still sometimes do as well? Uh, Yeah, yes, definitely. I find it really helpful. And they often when I'm doing things like that, I think, is this just procrastination or (laughs) is that? But it, it almost always does make a difference so even things that seem seem silly can work it's such a strange thing to do isn't it writing is mm. so counterintuitive often that with m- many other things that we do the solution is to work hard at it and with writing often the solution is to stop working and play exactly and it does somehow magically unlock things even though it sounds a bit woo at times, you do it. And then afterwards you just think, God, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I remember I wrote down the colour white and, you know, I started thinking about snow and paper and marshmallows and clean sheets and polar bears. And then you must have given us enough time to really go to a different place because I wrote things like empty and cold and purity and... Mm -hmm. The Beatles. Remember the White Album? (laughs) (laughs) And so even just doing the next piece of writing, you could work some of those concepts into it, even if you weren't thinking or planning to, because they are just a little bit different and not cliched. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it helps you also to think in terms of uh, both both very specific concrete things Mm -hmm. and and grand ideas because – I think the best writing is a combination of those two. You don't want it just to be methodical itemization of the objects around you, but you also don't want to get lost in in empty ideas. You need to anchor them. Yeah, and all the ideas you came up with around the concept of flight in Gravity is the Thing. There's all the usual things that you would associate with flight, you know, planes and birds, etc. But then getting the mind around the idea of flight as well and preparing yourself mentally and f- and even physically for flight, whether or not that's a metaphor in this, in this case, was really beautifully done. You must have done a lot of stream of consciousness and mind mapping with that to just to get all the different ideas around the idea of flight. 
Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, I did a lot of that mind mapping, like you say, and yeah. brainstorming, and over yeah, many times over the years. My dad used to be a pilot, and so flying was a part of the magic of childhood because he it was his childhood dream to be able to fly planes, and he worked really hard to make that dream come true and it seemed impossible from where he started but he made it come true and he's always talked about it with so much passion and the happiness of being in the in the blue sky and he spoke in the language of flight too in the aeronautical language which in that practical way but he also had some of the magic of it yeah we talked before about endings now Gravity is the Thing has an especially beautiful and very satisfying ending. Was this the way you always intended to end it or did that evolve as you wrote? Oh, thank you. The ending came to me in the shower. That's the other place. So water, I guess. go, water again. Thank you. People, a lot of people say they get their ideas in the shower. I was talking to an IT specialist, a computer programmer, who said he will go and have a shower to solve issues and stand it's a waste of water though if you stand there too long so but still the ending came to me complete in the shower and the ending I'm glad that it worked for you because like what I was saying before I don't like people not giving you an ending yeah and leaving things open and justifying it by saying this is literary and it's all has to be in your imagination because people invest a lot of time in reading a book so I think it's unfair not to not to close things off for them but I also don't believe in a in a purely um, tragic ending so there is some sadness at the end of the book I, I better not give away the ending I mean I won't give away the whole ending but it's not purely happy but I hope that it ends on a note of hope and happiness because that's the other thing I think I I get very irritated with books that are just tragic at the end because I think that's easy I think and often literary books seem to think that they should be sad at the end as a happy ending is a signal that it's too commercial I think that's the idea but I think a a compelling convincing happy ending that isn't too cheesy is much harder to write than a than a tragic ending Um, tragedy is a I feel like it's a cheap ending, but that's a personal mm-hmm. thing. And it's again that I've there's a book that I read once where this the main character had been through so much. We went through so much with her and then at the ending I think her ear got shot off or something. And oh. She had to go through <laughs> she had to go through this big journey and terrible things happened to her. And then at the end of the book it seemed like it was all working out. She was happy and in love with this lovely man. And then right at the end an avalanche came and killed the man. And that was the end of the book. And I've never forgiven that author for doing that. Because if, you, if you're willing to go through all that with the author, if you're going to give, I mean, it's not just time that you're giving yeah. to a book. It's also the space in your mind and your emotions and all of that. And, yeah, there's an element of sadness, but you gave us answers and that's what made it satisfying tragedy and no answers would have just been as you say deeply unsatisfying and annoying 
and we don't want to make the reader angry. Now, my beautiful writing buddy, Penelope Janu, she's always so good at sending in questions. Thank you, Pen. Um, she said, I was at the New South Wales Premier's Award in 2015 when The Cracks in the Kingdom won the YA Fiction Award. I loved Jacqueline's acceptance speech and bought this book and wow, forevermore. Jacqueline simply writes beautiful stories. I'd like to know, asking for a friend, Pen, I'm on to you, Pen's a lawyer, Jacqueline's thoughts on lawyers and writing. Does a love of words lead you to law or is it the other way around? What are your thoughts on law and creativity and fact and fiction? That is a, thank you so much, Pen. That's a lovely question. She's gorgeous. Thank you for being so kind about cracks in the kingdom. And, and that's a great question. Thank you. Yes, I worked as a lawyer for five years and I, I studied a lot of law. I did a master's and a PhD in law, so I loved the law. And I think that for a lot of people, okay, well, I think both things are true. Writers become lawyers and lawyers also become writers. Writers become lawyers because I think it feels like being a lawyer is the grown-up way of being a writer. So when you're a child, you, you want to be a writer and then you get older and think, well, that is a childish dream. Nobody actually becomes a writer and it's not sensible. And here's the way that you can be a sensible professional person and play with words the way that you've been playing with words. So you become a lawyer. And when I worked as a lawyer, I got my first book, published when I was a lawyer and at the time so many different lawyers came up to me and secretly said could we could we just have a coffee and <laughs> um, talk because I'd really like to write a book and they all had these secret dreams of becoming writers and they wanted me to tell them how I how I'd done it and I think that was partly those people who had always wanted to be a writer and become a lawyer like I did because that's sensible but there are also people who were just not happy as lawyers and seeing writing as a way out because they had that skill they they knew they could express themselves and they they wanted to escape from the law mm-hmm. and I think the law is uh, it's interesting being a lawyer uh, it can shut down your imagination in some ways because everything about it has to be very precise. I remember when I was a lawyer, we used a lot of precedents and precedents in the sense of that's case law that decides how future cases will be resolved. But there's also precedents which are, uh, in a sense, a standard form of a letter or a document or a contract. So they were all on the law firm's computer system. So, And they kept saying all the time, don't reinvent the wheel. You use what it's already done and use that and that's been tried and tested. And so that's the opposite of being a writer where you do want to invent the wheel and you want to create something completely new and fresh. So in a way, sometimes I worried that it was dangerous being a lawyer that it would would cut out all my potential hopeful creativity but it's also great I think it helped me to become a better lawyer because you have to find a way to organize your thoughts and to structure things and you have to express things with clarity and in a a succinct way because you often will only have one you've only got room for one page to express a complete argument or to contain all the information you want to communicate things to your client or to a judge in a way that is as concise as possible and also as compelling as possible and you want to create compelling narratives to convince juries and so all of those things I think really helped with my writing especially because 
I know I keep going on about how indecisive I am, but it just means I talk, talk, talk too much and write, write, write too much. <laughs> so that's just what I needed was someone to give me a framework to say, okay, shut up now. And just yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a great answer. I hope that answers your question, Pen. Jackie, what are you currently working on? Because I know you write for children, you write YA, you write adult fiction, you write all the things. Which I shouldn't. I should try and say in one particular genre, oh. one particular form of I'm supposed to. I know you're not supposed to jump all over the place, but I love doing both things at once. So at the moment I'm writing a grown-up book in the afternoons, although I keep this is how I did it with Gravity. I would write a children's book in the morning and Gravity in the afternoon. So I keep trying to do that again and I keep thinking, no, today I want to do this in the morning and that in the afternoon. So every time I get a structure or a routine, then I want to break it. But the two things I'm writing at the moment are another children's book in a series called the Bronte series or the Kingdoms and Empires series. And they are each standalone books probably for eight to 12 year olds I think and I've got a new one coming out at the end of this year and I've started another one and um, the new one's going to be called The Astonishing Chronicles of Oscar from Elsewhere. So I've used the name Oscar again. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't realize until I was halfway through it. No, not even until I finished it. I thought that's the name of the little boy in the gravity book yeah that's a great title by the way thank you and at the same time I'm writing a grown-up book which has time travel in it so I'd like to try and write grown-up books that are a bit magical but try and make that as realistic as I can because I want to believe in things like yeah flying and time travel ah I can't wait to read that one hurry up and write that will you Jackie, it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for giving up so much of your writing, adult writing time. I should be letting you get back to it because this is the adult book writing time, isn't it? It's Yeah, technically. It's technically. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Michelle. Thank you. And really great questions. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jackie. There you go, Jacqueline Moriarty. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. You can find Jacqueline at JacquelineMoriarty.com. She's also on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So go follow her in all those places, especially if you love gorgeous pictures of Sydney where she lives near the Harbour Bridge. So there's lots of great shots on her Insta. Now to our June book, which is The Ripping Tree by the fabulous Nikki Gemmell. Nikki's one of my all-time favourite writers. She's one of the reason I buy the Australian newspaper, just to read her column, and also any articles by Trent Dalton, of course. The Ripping Tree is a slight departure for Nikki. It's historical fiction. Um, I can't wait to talk to her about the process behind writing this novel and about her writing process in general. Nikki has written 13 novels, four works of non-fiction, and has been translated into 22 languages. So I think she knows a thing or two about writing. As always, we have three weeks to read The Ripping Tree and think of all the questions we'd like to ask Nikki. You can find links to buy the paperback and ebook versions of The Ripping Tree on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com and you can also leave your questions via the form on the website 
or pop them on Instagram or Facebook under any of the posts. You can also DM me anytime up until the 22nd of June. There's actually a competition to win a copy of The Ripping Tree over on my Instagram page. Uh, that closes on the 4th of June, so check that out. And huge thanks to Nikki's publisher, HarperCollins, for making that possible. Thank you so much for listening to Writers Book Club Podcast this month. You'll find all the show notes at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And if you like these interviews, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And thank you to everyone who's already left such gorgeous reviews. I really, really appreciate it. For those of you who are coming down to Storyfest in Milton Mollymook Ulladulla on the 18th to the 20th of June, I really look forward to seeing you in person down there. Um, if you don't know about Storyfest, jump on to storyfest.org.au and check out the program. Regional writers' festivals are so much fun. You really get to, to get up close and personal with the authors and it just always has such a lovely, intimate vibe. So if you're not doing anything, come and have a weekend down there. It'll be great fun and I'd love to see you. Um, that's it from me. As always, this podcast was recorded on the beautiful but unceded lands of the Garingai people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Have a great month, everyone. Happy writing, and I'll see you next month with Nikki Gemmell.